Um, so last, no, that was two lectures ago, I, I asked Benson to talk about parallels. So, so I have been using my slide deck, which I'm not entirely happy about, but um, I can maybe add some more thoughts to uh, what Benson was uh, talking. And uh, I noticed that, so basically, what, what's the rest of remaining of the course looks like? Next Monday, university has this 95th anniversary. At noon, uh, there is uh, Actus, the, the ceremony in the, in the university. So we will not have the lecture in here. Next Thursday, so basically after this, today, I think we had a potential opportunity for about two lectures, perhaps. Two or three maximum. I will be traveling on, on Monday on the what, 8, 9, 8 or 9, no, 8, 8, 9, I, I will be away. Um, so we can, um, we can have one, maybe up to two lectures more after today. Um, and my one question would be, I will go quickly around uh, over the, some of the ideas in here, and maybe also the beginning of the next lecture, but, um, what might be something that we uh, that you would like to hear? One thing that I could throw in that usually has not been part of this course, uh, we had separate course for text algorithms, um, because I can't run the two courses in parallel, I could take something very simple from the text algorithms, exact text matching. You have heard about uh, Knuth Morris Pratt algorithm a long time ago. But you don't remember anything about that. Yes. Who remembers about Knuth Morris Pratt? Who has heard, heard about Boyer Moore algorithms? What happens when you when you match many patterns? Instead, you do keyword search, right? Not one keyword, but you have thousand keywords like stop words or swear words that you want to eliminate from the spam commentaries. How do you match thousands of uh, words? as fast as you would match a single word. Or possibly, how, do, how, do you, how would you take the entire internet, index it in a single, if, if we had a global machine with a large enough memory, how it would be quicker, well, theoretically as quick to take entire internet, index it in a single data structure, and do the search, and be at the same order of magnitude that you would just go through searching just through, once through the entire internet. You can grab the data, index it, search in the same time as just going through the internet once. The, the long text, uh, the soft suffix trees. So I, uh, so I might be able to put together a lecture which is one, one and a half or two lectures I think, I think one and a half lectures about exact matching, multiple matching, and basics of the text indexing. If that is what you want. Or you say that, no, I want to have a rest. Okay, um, I will think about that. Um,
because I would need to combine a couple of things together. So parallel. Uh, parallel is really, as Benson was saying, that single processor speed cannot be improved by too much anymore at the moment. It seems that for, there are some limits for the single processor speed. The clock rates have not been increasing as fast as they used to be increasing 20 years ago. So what is inevitably happening is, is this. Right? So we get speed by adding more processors and throwing them in uh, for calculations. Uh, multiple cores on the single processor. Now the cores are getting like, you can get the 10, 10 core tablet computers. Um, you can get, uh, I think, one of the, you, you may be uh, buying the next uh, uh, home computers with uh, 60 cores or whatever. So it, it's, it's clear that cores, multiple cores, are coming. Uh, because more and more elements can be put in the same space, but you can't run it faster. Right? The clock speed is how fast you run, but the number of elements, what more and more really says is about number of elements in the, in the same space at the same price. So that has been doubling every one and a half years. So now we start doubling the number of cores every one and a half years, if we don't make the cores bigger or more clever. Uh, and then the question is, can you solve large problems like summing many values quicker by having more processors? And the problems, of course, is that how do you distribute the data, how do you dis distribute the tasks, and how do you collect the results? That is really what is very important in the parallel algorithms. How do you distribute? How do you collect? And do they need to talk to each other? Uh, oh yeah, uh, and of course processor development keeps uh, going. This is not so new, uh, uh, but basically for a space you may need to somehow, somehow have better, uh, well, something that is more tolerable against the cosmic radiations or whatever. Top 500, Benson was talking about that. He didn't show these kinds of slides. How the different computer architectures, like this one is Intel processor in here. So what, let's look at, what, what is this? This is, uh, what is this Fujitsu? No, what color? I can't match all the colors. Cray, it's probably Cray. The Cray uh, used to do also their own custom-made processors, like efficient uh, processors, and, uh, and then faded away. So the, you can see the emergence, what is the white? Spark architectures. Spark architectures, like Sun was using Spark architectures, were coming, then they were popular and fading away. Do I see Spark again? Did Benson mention some of the Spark, didn't he? I think you mentioned that one of those was Spark architecture. Um, so, like uh, seeing the generations of different uh, uh, different architectures, are there some risk risk architectures are here? Reduced information. No, how was it? Re reduced information set. So the beauty of the risk architectures was that they were made very simple uh, individual uh, tasks. And every, every uh, 
uh, assembler level or processor level operation was exactly the same uh, length, sort of very more simpler somehow for processor to um, calculate. And then you have some which are complex information set, like like these. Uh, I think uh, Spark was rather complex instruction set, so that you have more possible um, sets that have been implemented in the in the hardware. Uh, Titan, Bianhe. The growth of this. And uh, I was surprised, I think he didn't show this slide. So this is how the fastest computer speed in petaflops has been increasing over the time. So the fastest one line is ten, one order of magnitude, ten times faster in here, right? If you think of the doubling, uh, doubling the speed every one and a half years, then it's two by two by two. In three, a little bit more than three years, the, that's what we understand somehow, that uh, we tenfold, make it tenfold uh, faster, right? You buy the computer, after three years, you buy ten times faster computer, or four years later. Right? That, that is about the, the rate of the Moore law. In here, the, what is the length, how many years it takes to cross the line? So from, in here it's easier, uh, 93 to 97, four years. 97 to, oh, it seems that there was been five years. It's sudden jump. It's probably better to follow this uh, straight line through. So at which rate it goes through the, um, increases in here 93 to to 1915 so it's 20 years to here how many lines 93 1 2 3 4 5 6 7 10 to the power of 7 increase in 20 years 7 in 20 years so that means in 3 years average you get 7 times 3 is 21, so on average 3 years you get doubling the speed. And that's exactly what you observe. This is the fastest computer, and this is the 500th computer, the slowest of the tank. And this is the total speed of the 500 fastest computers. So you can see that the fastest is only 10 times slower than all the 500 combined. You take the 500 fastest computers together and you get only 10 times more power than the fastest of that time. But this is uh, how amazingly uh, predictable it has been so far. And of course, the, <laughs> all the times there is a threat that this will flatten out, that it, now we have achieved the limits and now we, have, now we can't go uh, larger, etc. But there is not only a single processor, but you can throw in more cores, right? So we get the speed increase by throwing in more cores. You can go, if you can put on a single chip hundreds of cores, then it's easier to go to hundreds of thousands of cores, right? If there is hundred cores, then you need only thousand uh, processors to get hundred thousand cores. 
And uh, about the power, uh, we calculated how many sauna stoves it is, really when you switch all of them uh, on. And if you think of the single processor, even on your, probably even in the laptop, then it produces more heat than what your electric, um, when you boil the eggs on the uh, electric plate, yeah? it produces more heat per centimeter, square centimeter, the processor. So the heat, heat production is a problem and all, all of these kind of issues. So let physicists deal with them and let we pro uh, provide better algorithms for them to, uh, so that, they don't need, uh, that we don't need so much faster computers. Now the flops, how many chassis, how many nodes per chassis, how many sockets per node, how many cores per socket, socket being in here one processor, how many cores per socket, uh, what is the clock speed, and how many uh, flops you do per cycle. That is what is your theoretical number of floating point operations per second. How many computers, how many, uh, sorry, yeah, how many big boxes, how many computers in them, how many uh, CPUs, how many cores, clock speed, and how many operations per uh, cycle. The processor fetches the instruction in one cycle, then identifies what to do with this, executes, uh, accesses memory and uh, registers right back. So memory fetches something, fetches something from the memory or from the yeah from memory, uh, and then writes back the value. Yeah. So to get one instruction resolved, you need many clock cycles. You don't execute one command in one clock cycle. You take many. But luckily you can start the next operation already in the next cycle. Right? So you get this instruction level parallelism by starting operations on parallel. Right? Not waiting until one is completed, then starting the other one. So you have one level of parallelism in here. Um, and this is on the RISC architecture. It's a very simple uh, way to do. The next is some operations can be done completely on parallel. Your, op optimizer, uh, your compiler optimizes, oh, they don't depend on each other. Let's do them in parallel. So some of the code is amenable to better parallelism on this level. Yeah. So how many operations you do on really on parallel. Uh, and, and now you suddenly have two operations per clock cycle, theoretically. Uh, this was our first high-performance computer in Tartu uh, 2009. We had 42 nodes, so this is, really looks very modest. Uh, it's nothing really complicated back then, but it, I think we we got from university was invested 1.5 million crowns, that is, that is about 100,000 euros. At that time, it was really much larger amount of money uh, than it may feel now. But uh, this was impressive at that at that time, at that moment of time. Uh, each node had 32 gigabyte of RAM. Uh, started to do this uh, job uh, scheduling and uh, MPI. 
this is not uh, working anymore, um, has been disassembled, but it had uh, InfiniBand uh, network key. InfiniBand connecting these different uh, uh, computers in the way that you have in InfiniBand uh, network switches and when this machine wants to talk to there, it, InfiniBand identifies one way there and maybe on parallel uses the other way there too. Yeah? So there was even, I think, two ways to reach that. So you can push through double amount data uh, through two channels to this receiving end. Um, InfiniBand, uh, when you start having single double quad data rates, if you have only one channel or double channels or four channels, then you can start having these different speeds, how many gigabits per second you can push through one, from one node to the other. To maximize gigabits per second, you write everything on disk, ship them on, on the ferry and send them over to the, over the ocean to the other side. You send many bits per second over to the other side if you just count how much data you send. More important is, uh, not only more important, but very important is the latency, how fast the message goes through. Yeah? You don't want, you can't talk uh, or chat over the ferry line connections. Uh, and uh, this InfiniBand received uh, a microsecond, well basically uh, latencies of a hundred, a couple of hundred nanoseconds, much faster than the Ethernet, etc. And uh, uh, this MPI uh, one microsecond latency um, or one two microsecond latencies. Um, I did send the, the video to this. Uh, how much? How, how much is the nanosecond? Right. I think we can we can have a look at that. Uh, oh, there it is. <laughs> I didn't check the slides yesterday. <laughs> Let me see if we can watch it. They started talking about circuits that acted in nanoseconds, billionths of a second. Oh, I didn't know what a billion was. I don't think most of those men downtown know what a billion is either. And, uh, if you don't know what a billion is, how on earth do you know what a billionth is? I fussed and fumed. Finally, one morning, in total desperation, I called over to the engineering building, and I said, please cut off a nanosecond and send it over to me. And I brought you some today. Now, what I wanted when I asked for a nanosecond was, I wanted a piece of wire which would represent the maximum distance that electricity could travel 
in a billionth of a second. Now, of course, it wouldn't really be through wire. Be out in space, velocity of light. So if you start with a velocity of light and use your friendly computer, you'll discover that a nanosecond is 11.8 inches long. The maximum limiting distance that electricity can travel in a billionth of a second. Finally, at the end of about a week, I called back and said, I need something to compare this to. Could I please have a microsecond? I've only got one microsecond, so I can't give you each one. Here's a microsecond. 984 feet. I sometimes think we ought to hang one over every programmer's desk or around their neck so they know what they're throwing away when they throw away microseconds. Now, I hope you'll all get your nanoseconds. They're absolutely marvelous for explaining to wives and husbands and children and admirals and generals and people like that. An admiral wanted to know why it took so damn long to send a message via satellite. And I had to point out that between here and the satellite, there were a very large number of nanoseconds. (laughs) You can explain these things. It's really very helpful, so be sure to get your nanoseconds. Stuff, right? Now the screen is all strange. And that's why you, don't, you can't put the computers far from each other when you develop a fast compute center, right? You can't put them far away from each other. Um, so all this kind of stuff that Google or all these big data centers are doing that they put in different continents, most of the stuff is, has to be there so that you can serve locally, but you can't have too many connections between the data centers that you, you have, you, you will not have very fast interconnect. But fast interconnect is really uh, needed often. Uh, so, but with this information you can somehow uh, calculate how much, uh, yeah, how much, uh, if you have know how many operations, op- op- how many CPUs, uh, how many cores they have, uh, etc. Then you can start calculating the theoretical uh, theoretical uh, performance. Everything that was on the top 500 list was uh, not theoretical performance, but actual throughput on a single benchmark task. Right? So they they executing the simple the same benchmark task and then doing actual analysis. And that's when some of the uh, Computers will be optimized for certain types of tasks. Maybe the same benchmark doesn't bring out their 
best features. Uh, uh, you can sometimes you need more RAM, so we have uh, had for quite a long time already these one terabyte RAM machines, and that was essential when we uh, started to do the uh, large scale social network analysis in the beginning to fetch all the data in to repackage it into smaller chunks. For example, the graph data, take the large graph data in and then package in the small optimal space. Uh, HPC Center has now this two terabyte RAM machine with I think some 80 or 100 cores. So you can actually uh, do uh, large scale uh, data on those machines. Uh, The principle of, principles of parallel computing or parallel algorithms are very similar to what you have in, in a single core. Sometimes you, you apply this parallelism and, and somehow there are not very many textbooks that, uh, that would be totally more, uh, new somehow in the field. I, I think when I was asking for some textbooks then Joseph Jaya, for example, you can see that 20-year-old books, but basic principles are all outlined theoretically back then. Um, so what is a parallel algorithm? You, you ask every processor to do something, right? When you go to uh, scan through the forest, you just send many people so that you can scan forest in one in one go, but you will scan through entire forest. You have, if, you, if you split the data to every computer, it doesn't mean that there is less to compute, just more computers do that. Uh, so every parallel algorithm you can run on a single processor at the same speed, in a way. You just do the job of first and then the job of second. You don't do less job by parallelizing. You just do it in parallel. It's not entirely true. There are some, uh, some uh, cases where there is some super parallelism, but come, come from some different uh, uh, reasons. So the parallelism, you can start thinking of very simple, like if, if you need to add together the values, then you can take two values, add them together, and this is independent from the other two values added together, and you can start with all, distribute two numbers to every processor, you get back the number, you then have less, two times less data, then you do this in parallel, and you have this sort of like tree structure, right? Uh, when you have n numbers, how many additions did you do? Okay. Uh, we did, yeah, uh, how many additions did we do? It's n minus one in here. n minus one additions, but in parallel, and then you can ask what is the, how fast you could do it, and that would be log n. Actually, it's not log n, because if you have millions of data points, then you don't have million minus one computers to start with. Right? It depends how many computers you have. So we need to separate what is the work, total work that needs to be done, and the time span over which you can achieve the work. So the time span, you thought of the uh, height of the tree, if you have infinite number of, well, of all the needed number of processors, then 
the time span would be logarithmic to some things to, together, right? You can't do it faster, I guess. So in, there is a, a field of computational complexity which talks about circuit complexity. And when you, when you think of the circuit, I think I, we have some pictures of that, then it's really like a single and-or XOR gate. This is one unit on the, on the, on the circuit. Uh, how deep the circuit uh, will be to achieve some task? How many steps you need to go through? Uh, so work and span, and of course in parallelism we somehow uh, we want to reduce the span. We want to reduce the time span by which we get the answer. Um, and then we need to come up with a schedule to schedule the tasks on many uh, computers. And then time span is uh, somehow we make the schedule which represents the graph directly the cyclic graph, send the tasks, and uh, and what is the time span is the, the shortest possible, achievable, longest route through the graph. So the one slowest, one slowest uh, path determines the time span. The slowest path determines the time span. And we want to make somehow sure that the time span is reduced. There is no very long uh, time spans. The smallest organization of the, uh, somehow the calculation so that we get the shortest uh, maximum time. So parallelism can, as I said, is, it can be on between the computers, but it already starts on the processor level, uh, on the CPU level, um, what are the bit level operations, uh, how the bits are organized, so basically we represent these as a graph, basically the, the single gates uh, doing the not zeros into ones, ones into zeros, and ors, exclusive ors, etc. So single gates, it's easy to draw them. Uh, you can take the Boolean formula, represent it as a gate. You know that this gate would, uh, from two inputs would calculate uh, and, and then you can start putting these uh, things together, Boolean. Logic helps you to uh, come up with the ways to calculate. Uh, um, um, to cal you can plug in different uh, gates to calculate A and B. What does this What does this calculate? A or B, and not and A and uh, B. What is this? And this is reversed. What is the formula calculated in here? You have taken mathematical logic. Um, A or B is true, uh, not and is true, is false only in the cases when both are true. This is negated. I, th I think that meant uh, negation. So one of them is true, but not both. So that this combination would only identify these uh, uh, like XOR. Um, of course, everything is impl implemented in different uh, uh, these uh, transistor layers. We are not going to talk about them, but the abstract of these things can be designed. Uh, processors uh, to uh, uh, design with these different gates together. 
What does this do? It does uh, take two 8-bit words and adds them together. Um, two 8-bit words, two bits at the time come in, one goes out, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and the overflow. Um, or, no, this is the overflow. So, from the overflow, you don't think in the beginning, but you take in the overflow, you take two bits, zero, zero produces zero, zero, one produces one, and then you can look at the next bit, one, one produces zero, and then you carry over to the next, and then you have three inputs, two, two plus the carryover. So carryover will, will move to the next one and produce the value. So the, there is always carryover from previous, then you have kind of three bits to add together, you can do carryover, and the last one is carryover, did you overflow by adding eight bits, did you overflow or not? And uh, this, you might take in also the one bit, extra bit in the beginning, you give out one extra bit at the end, with this 8-bit adder design, you can make uh, single-bit adders, but uh, you can combine them together into 16-bit adders. Four 16-bit adders add together 64-bit adders. So you can start abstracting away uh, the chip design. If your individual components have been designed properly, then you can uh, make the higher-level abstractions. And of course, computer designers then have to verify that all of these things work uh, optimally and, and correctly, etc. So, as I said, circuit complexity would calculate what is the longest path through the circuit, how many elements on the circuit. Uh, Morel law says that we can put more and more elements. So, yes, we can go more elements parallel, but the critical is the longest path through the circuit. So, this is an entirely mathematical concept of the theoretical circuit complexity. Some algorithms can be parallelized, but things like pi, calculating the pi, the 5,755th value of the pi, you can't calculate them independently from the previous steps. So pi somehow is, is very sequential uh, calculations. So what kind of terminology we have been starting to acquire? So we worked about, talked about work and span. In a way, we want to talk about time complexity. What is the span, uh, time complexity? Do we get the speed up compared to a single processor? What is the efficiency of the speed up? And how scalable the uh, computers are? Plus, communications. What is the communication cost model? How do the processors talk to each other? Single, sort of like illustrates sequential, you go start and finish. If these are independent tasks, um, but you have not parallelized properly, you haven't achieved much, these three could be executed on parallel, this is ideal, you have three times smaller time to calculate, right? In realistic scenario, you can't get it exactly this, you will have some uh, breaks somewhere in, in there, so it's slightly more than this ideal case. Uh, speed up is uh, what is the how much faster do you get on parallel processors as compared to one processor? So presumably this is smaller. Speed up is 50 
50 times faster. Efficiency is uh, speed up over the how many processors you throw in. If you throw in 100 processors to achieve 50 times speed up, you only have efficiency that is two times less than on a single processor. You have acquired 50 times speed up, but on 100 processors. And 100 processors did the uh, work, so basically you have doubled the entire, you have doubled the work, amount of work that needed to be done. It's not obvious that when you start throwing in more processors that we get efficiency or, or we don't do less work uh, for sure, but what is the speed up? Just increasing the number of processors doesn't help us to do things always faster. Um, Sometimes there could be even the cases when, but, but sometimes there are cases that, uh, that uh, starting to do things on parallel, you get super linear speed up. So you actually get much faster the solution. And, and this is by, if you think of the search, we have been talking about search spaces, search trees over the large search spaces, right? If you start doing this in parallel, you may somehow observe knowing some results early on you may actually be able to eliminate very large chunks of the search spaces. So if your parallel work allows to get somehow jump ahead in a way, you know ahead that something needs not to be done. Uh, so that may be giving this uh, uh, super linear speed up. All cache effects, that data is locally, you keep calculating locally, which is much faster than shuffling the data between the places. The last piece of today is uh, Aundahl's law, and that asks how much speed up can we get in principle. And this is very simple. If 5% if of your code that you write is not parallelizable, at all. You need to do something 5% of the time. What is the largest speed up that you can get? If 5% cannot be parallelized, 95% can. What can be the speed up? 20 times. You can't get rid of that 5. Your work if you start throwing in infinite number of processors, the 5% you still have to spend. 5% of the time you still have to spend. Yeah. You only speed up the parallel part, but 5% will be still. So Andal's law says exactly this, that if, if, you're, if you have part of the work that cannot be parallelized, uh, parallel portion is 95%, then you, by throwing in more processors, you will approach the 20 time speed up and never go beyond. That's, that's what I'm does though. If your code is, uh, uh, the red one is 75%, 25% is not parallelizable, therefore the maximum that you can achieve is four times speed up. So no matter what you do, if 25% has to be there, you can get maximum four times speed up. Not more. So to really get efficient speed up for millions of processors, almost all the job has to be parallelizable. 
Um, and of course, this comes back to the kind of optimization, very similar to generic code optimization. How many of you have run the, the profilers of your code? When you write the program with the different subroutines, uh, do you know how much one or the other line has been executed? Or how much time do you spend in one subroutine versus some others? You do the optimization stuff, is it more complex to come up with a new order or, or you spend most of the time calculating what is objective function value for this case? Most programming languages have this profiler. You switch on the profile, you run, you, you, you compile with the profiler's switch. It counts every single command that it executes and relates it to the source code and can give you out that this line of source code has been executed a million times and this has been only executed five times or once, right? Uh, if your original process, this is the slow part, optimizing the blue part five times faster gives you still this time. But if you manage to do red part twice faster and didn't touch B, you have this speed up. Right? So there is the slow part, you have to work on the slow part. Okay, so uh, as I promised, we will stop it here. So next time uh, we can talk about the communications. Really, what does it mean to talk one application talks to the other application in the other computer? All the so basically where the latency comes in, latency and data throughput comes in, and how many different layers of abstraction need to be traversed from your code, maybe your own code, but from one application to the other application running on a different on a different computer because they run different operating system instances there is networks etc so that's where we lose these uh, precious microseconds 300 meters of wire one microsecond okay so um, next Thursday, we have the next uh, lecture.